This is Legal Tech Week for December 18th, 2020. Uh, it is our last show of the year. And uh, this is Bob Ambrogi. I am uh, I write the blog Law Sites and also have the uh, podcast Law Next. And uh, might as well all introduce ourselves. We have, we seem to have, uh, we have Santa here, uh, it looks like. So uh, Santa, you want to start? <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> Oh, great. My phone's ringing. Apologies. Uh, Caroline Hill, Editor-in-Chief, Legal IT Insider. I'm going to go mute really quickly. I'm sorry about the phone ringing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Nikki. You know uh, Nikki Black, the Legal Technology Evangelist in my case, Law Practice Management Software. I write uh, legal tech columns for uh, Bob's Law, ABA Journal, Daily Record, Weekly Post, and the My Case blog, and other outlets. All right, Joe. Joe Patrice from Above the Law and Thinking Like a Lawyer and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it's uh, we're coming to the end of uh, 2020 and what a fantastic year it was, everybody. Um, <laughs> I think we all are gonna miss it. Yeah, Victoria. Hey everyone, my name is Victoria Hudgens. I'm based in Philadelphia where I write for uh, ALM. Mainly, you'll see my byline at Legal Tech News, where I cover the intersection of law and technology in the legal tech industry. All right. And Molly? Molly McKenna. I'm a media strategist and consultant based in the Chicago area. I produce Legal Talk Today, where my favorite interview of the year was of Santa. <laughs> Which has, you'll have to explain the legal connection there, but the... Uh, Steve. I ask, I ask the only legal question. Oh, okay. Steve, uh, me? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Steve Embry. I uh, was a practicing lawyer for a good number of years as a litigator in a big law firm. And then I left two years ago to start the blog Tech Law Crossroads, which I uh, currently write. And um, to Molly's point, I saw the movie Miracle on 34th Street the other night where the lawyer successfully established that Santa Claus was real and that the Santa Claus in the courtroom was the real Santa Claus. <laughs> so you should interview him. <laughs> or as the Marx brothers would have said, what's all this talk about a sanity clause? Uh, Zach. Hey there, everybody. I'm Zach Warren. I'm the editor-in-chief of ALM's Legal Tech News, also on law.com and other ALM brands. And also now just thinking to myself whether Santa has to use do not pay a lot because of all the places he parks his sleigh on people's roofs. <laughs> yeah, and last but not least, Victor. Hi, everyone. My name is Victor Lee. I am the assistant managing editor for the ABA Journal covering the business of law and technology. I did not uh, go with the beard, unfortunately. Um, sorry. Uh, you know, um, probably since I can't grow a beard myself, so I, 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 <laughs> I, I don't like putting fake beards on, so I don't like to give myself false hope. Um, but I, I will I will plug uh, Nikki. Nikki did an excellent uh, year in recap for us um, for her column for, uh, for the ABA Journal. Uh, that should be live sometime next week. Um, so I encourage everybody to check that out. She did a great job on it. Are you saying I can grow a beard? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the subject to GDPR, Molly? No, I think he's saying don't anybody watch the show because they can just read about it in ABA Journal. And... 
uh, well, we'll watch for that. But uh, we are going to do a little bit of that. I mean, it, uh, we usually recap the top news of the week, but it seems uh, a missed opportunity at this point to not talk about uh, the top stories of the year. And yeah, I know everybody's saying, well, we all know what the top story of the year was, which was COVID. Uh, and yeah, but but uh, there were permutations off of uh, that, I think, that that are worth talking about and maybe some other stories that are worth talking about, too. So. Uh, I thought we could just kick off by going around, and I'm sure I'm sure some of us will, uh, you know, there will be some redundancies here because uh, there's only so much uh, to talk about. But I, I'd love to hear everybody's thoughts on what they think were the top stories uh, of the year in legal tech. Uh, and since Molly's wearing antlers, I think we should go with her first. <laughs> awesome. Um, so. Uh, for me, the top story has been and continues to be the widespread closure of the courts um, and um, all of the implications that that had. Uh, and then on the tech side, how um, quickly some courts uh, ramped up um, and pivoted or adapted to uh, new technologies uh, to bring their courts um, not only up to speed, but into the modern era. Uh, so I think that's that's going to be something that's that will continue on, uh, and a lot of the learning we've had and experiences the courts have had have really pushed um, the courts to modernize and uh, to find different ways that are are um, that folks can access the courts and the justice system um, outside of their the old in person laborious long trips and and. Uh, you just muted yourself. You just muted. Got muted. Sorry. Yeah. So that was that. That's that's my story. Yeah. I, I'm going to guess that several of us agree with you on on that uh, being a, a really significant story. Um, Steve, did you was that something you wanted to comment on too? You you would uh, yeah. talk about that too. I think. Yeah, as yeah. you know, as a litigator, I uh, a former litigator anyway, uh, I was surprised and encouraged by how. Um, not only courts, but to some extent, lawyers began adopting to online proceedings, uh, either in whole, uh, going you know from from bench trials to even jury trials uh, online. I was talking to a lawyer the other day, and you know he and his uh, adversary agreed to do their jury trial online versus waiting, God knows when, to have an in-person trial. And so it, it 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 I think it will have a downstream effect as more and more lawyers look at the ability to do things online and, and look at the convenience of being able to do things online. And it goes so far as, you know, perhaps not a complete jury trial online, but portions of the trial to be online. And when you think about the convenience to the court, the convenience to the lawyers, and even the witnesses um, of being able to do things online where you, you don't have to sit around a courtroom all day waiting to be called to be a witness and lose a day's pay. And Jurors, right? Uh, you know the, the people that we sometimes forget about. Uh, online proceedings for them sure beats traveling downtown to a courthouse, paying to park, wasting days of time, not getting paid their regular for the regular job, plus the disruption. So, I think we'll have you know the the, the fact that courts are embracing this, I think will have an impact on lawyers who will be forced to embrace it. And even as far as clients who will require their lawyers to embrace it. So I think it's gonna be, I think it's gonna really change things uh, across the litigation landscape. 
Yeah. Anybody else want to comment on that? I mean, I guess the flip side would be that, you know, you know, it, it remains to be seen whether or not, you know, if, if, and when the COVID crisis passes, people are just going to be like, Oh, well, we can go back to normal now. You know, everything's, right. everything's done. Everything's great. You know? Um, and, 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 and I mean, you know, you would think that, that, that you wouldn't be able to, um, you know, that, that, that we probably come too far in that regards, but I, I guess it remains to be seen whether or not, you know, the, I mean, the legal profession can be very stubborn when it wants to be as we've all, as we've all seen, as we've all, as we all know. Um, so it'll be interesting to, to see how much of this is permanent and how much of this is just kind of justified as, all right, well, those were extraordinary circumstances, you know, once in a lifetime thing, you know, now we can just go back to doing, doing things the way that we've always done it. I think what's really fascinating yep. yeah. for me is, um, is sorry, so I, think, um, I think what's really fascinating is I think in the first half of the year, there was a lot about survival and just like getting by, but in terms of using Zoom and all of that kind of stuff. But the, the interesting thing that's come through for me in the later half of the year is a realization that things are better. So, so that people have got better contact with their clients. Lawyer, lawyers are realizing that face-to-face you know, video meetings it's actually better than everyone on a conference call. We can't see who's speaking and everyone's like, who is that? And, you know, actually they're realizing that it gives them better interaction between, you know, remote offices. And um, so I feel like there's this awakening that, um, that actually this is kind of, there's an excitement almost. Um, <laughs> perhaps I'm being a bit dramatic as the fears, but, <laughs> but I, think, I think that there's a different sentiment in the second half than there was in the first. Yeah, I'll echo that with, um, I had a conversation with a notable, uh, almost 80 year old lawyer who was telling me, I never would have believed it, but Zoom, this thing's really great. You can get a hold of everybody. I feel more connected than ever. And like, it really is. Even even people who are soon to be octogenarians are, are embracing all of that tech. I would also add one interesting thing about the courts being closed that I found is uh, earlier in the year, we did a special series, a COVID cast series, just about like changes in the law. And one of the most fascinating stories uh, for me of the year was we talked to a jury consultant uh, who was telling us that they'd done a study and they were thinking that what we're staring down the barrel of it, in the later half of the year and, and beginning of next year are juries that are going to be markedly more pro-business and stingy because courts are basically saying people can opt out of going to in-person jury because if they're afraid of COVID and lo and behold, uh, there's a political divide between who believes COVID's a threat in this country and who doesn't. Uh, and they were finding that the jury pools are going to be massively stacked in favor of people who don't believe it's a threat and believe businesses should be you know, protected from liability and stuff. It was a really interesting talk. You know, and it, it's it's some, it's it's even more than than that because um, you know one of the hallmarks of the jury system is a representative jury of the community, and many people in the community simply don't have uh, you know the the capability of participating online in a in a jury trial, um, and most of those people are uh, you know lower. Uh, incomes. And, you know, that's a problem if those kinds of people are going to be excluded from participation. That's something that we will have to address as a system if we're going to continue going this route. Yeah. Well, I was going to echo a little bit of what Victor said in terms of um, looking at the other side of this. Uh, I think that when you try to consider, when you try to predict whether 
lawyers will continue to use technology the way that they're using tech. You have to take ego and escape into consideration. And by that, I mean, um, lawyers will probably continue to use Zoom, I think, for uh, some of those conversations that um, are long distance, right? Um, and possibly for some client communications, if it's easier for the client. But uh, a for a lot of lawyers, their job fulfills their ego. It makes them feel better about themselves. It makes them feel important. And it's the interactions with the people in their office, with other lawyers, with people that they consider to be below them that makes them feel special. And you don't get those interactions the same way uh, with judges, you know, hobnobbing with the judges. You don't get that same interaction through Zoom. So I think between the ego aspect and also the escape aspect. So a lot of lawyers, uh, use their jobs as an escape from home. <laughs> and I think particularly of a lawyer that I, uh, there was a partner in my, uh, the law firm when I was an associate, and there was a huge snowstorm. And I'm from upstate New York and normally I can drive through anything, but uh, there was this crazy snowstorm. And I tried to get to work and I couldn't. It was the first time in my whole life that I haven't been able to just drive through the snow. And I got stuck like half a block from my house and I just got the car out and turned around and came home. And I got into the office like two or three hours later and I was the second person in the office. The other person in the office was a partner. And I was like, well, how did you get here? What are you doing? He's like, are you kidding me? And stay at home with my wife and kids on a snow day. I would have walked here. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I think that there's this, the being in the office and being in court and having this important job that is this excuse to sort of avoid some of those responsibilities. I think that a lot of lawyers use their jobs in that way. And so I think that this face-to-face -face thing is, not going to go away. Um, I do think that Zoom will be used when things are uh, for convenience's sake. But um, and some people will be allowed yeah. to work remotely more than they had been in the past. But I still think that we're going to end up switching back just because the law is the law, and lawyers are lawyers, and you can't change them that quickly. I wish yeah. you could, I, but I'm I, not I sure. think the big change is is in the perspective toward technology. It's not so much whether we're going to use Zoom or not, but it's it's in the overall attitude, and and I think that's where the courts have probably changed the most dramatically. Uh, you know, um, uh, Suskin's book uh, on the courts, which came out like right before all this happened. I mean, I, I swear he planned the whole pandemic just to sell that book. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he talks in that book about how the problem with, with, with modernizing the courts is that you can't change the tire on a moving vehicle. Well, you know, the vehicle came to a full stop and, and, all the tires were flat and the courts realized that they were all flat and, and they immediately took steps to start to address that. Uh, and I, I think, you know, I think we've all heard any number of judges say over and over again this year that we needed to do this and there's no turning back from, from the changes we've started to make. We still have a long way to go, but I, I really think the courts uh, have, uh, under, have finally understood. They've sort of gotten answered the wake-up call for the first time about the need to modernize, and, and they're reacting to it in a way that uh, there's no going back from. I think it was. I think it was Richard, or maybe it was the, a kind of a forced off. beta. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I, well, I was just going to say it's like a forced beta test um, of of so much so quickly. You know, there has to be a period of analysis and review to see what's working, what's protecting rights, all of that still needs to happen. But like Bob said, there's so much Oops. to become converted judges who were um, never going to adopt technology, never wanted to deviate from their current practices, say that, that that's what they, that they could never go back. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I, I might have read this, but I'm going to, there was a, a letter, our, the chief justices of all the Massachusetts courts put out a letter this summer that I, I may have read. I'm not going to read the whole letter, but uh, one thing they said in this, they said that this is quoting the letter before the pandemic, we expected that it would take years to make substantial progress with the pandemic. We've made substantial progress in just a few months. Therefore, even when the pandemic is behind us, we do not believe we will or should go back to doing things as we did before. Yeah. That's, and I don't that's think that's I don't think necessarily those changes are predicated on attorneys adopting in like I'm kind of preempting what I had for my weekly story this week, but a bunch of federal courts said we're going to be beta testing live streaming come February Um, 13 federal courts and they were all over the place too, ranging from I think Tennessee to Idaho. Um, There's a lot of people who are who took this opportunity to take a step back and say, hey, we can do things differently. We can introduce transparency. We saw the Supreme Court have telephonic hearings that a lot of people were able to call into. Um, So if something like live streaming comes out of this, even if it's not necessarily attorneys saying, hey, we're cool with virtual courts, there's still some technology element that I think benefits the public at large. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, the... That is an issue, I think, uh, Zach, because, you know, we have this concept in the United States that courts are open to the public, that, you know, anybody that wants to go sit it through a trial or a hearing, you know, you could walk to the courthouse and go through security and go sit in. Um, you know, what does that mean in a, in a virtual world, in an online world? Now, granted, you know, I can't for the life of me imagine why somebody would want to go watch some, you know, IP litigation going on in a federal court, but, you know, <laughs> you're supposed to be able to, right? So, <laughs> Right. So we just kind of meshed up, I think, a lot of people's top stories in, in, in that conversation because we kind of talked about more than more than courts. But can I elaborate on this? So, so, so what's yeah. really interesting about, um, so I think my top story, not in terms of the theme, and I've just had did a bunch of interviews for the Orange Rag with a bunch of CIOs, and every single one was talking about premises and and how to actually deliver. So we're talking about the tech, we're talking about Zoom, right? So, but what is what the, the conversation that was coming through so strongly from every single CIO I spoke to was how do we deliver what's coming next year, right? So that it's all it's all about hybrid and it's all about you know we're going to be like who's going to how many people are going to be in the office, right? And some of them were saying, do you know what? If they all decide to work from home, then we're going to have to respect that. Some of them are taking a much you know different line, like sixty forty or whatever. But from a, from from a biz right now, they're trying to plan when they don't know what's happening. And then from a business services and tech perspective, it's really like trying to juggle jelly. Um, but the and but on the other hand, the really cool thing um, and a challenge was like, what does the hybrid office look like? And they, they're going to have to make. They're really looking at space, right? So for, so for one of the first times, I think prep, like facilities came through really strongly in my conversations like how do they make the office really tech enabled so that when you do for example a half 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 meeting where you've got some people in the office and some people are out it's not i can't hear move move the conference phone in the middle like, you know it's like how do you how do you make it good and not rubbish and like there's so many conversations going on now behind the scenes and i think we've seen that coming through the whole year right so that for the first time we've really They've really gone agile. That's the first, this is the first year when agile is the norm. That's, a, you know, amazing. Um, and, but now it's like, what does that look like? You know, I think it's, so, the th- so for me, the theme of the year has obviously been 
you know where people are the agile working and yeah. it's like how do how the hell do you deliver that going forward it's exciting but it's also going to be a massive challenge yeah and I think a lot of it's in flux too for something different I was on yesterday I was looking up some of our tech survey numbers and they were just back in August September not too far ago and when we talked to CIOs he said okay so are you expecting your real estate to change within the next year about a third said yes we're expecting it to decrease about 10% said no we're keeping it static but what really stood out to me is 55% said we have no idea because <laughs> everything is so in flux right now and I think that's going to continue. And I think that's still the case, even though we're currently in law firm budgeting season. Nobody quite knows what the future is going to look like, even with the advances in COVID vaccine technology and all that. There's just no consensus whatsoever, even within individual firms. And because yeah. what's fascinating is that although you can take a hard line in theory, it's one of those things about you can't force people to come into the office, right? If there are people that are uncomfortable, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to take a hot line and then everybody rebels or, you know, they're not comfortable in public transport because, the, you know, like it's one of those things where they, it's for the culturally, I think it's been a massive challenge. Like they can't just, they have to actually respect people's attitudes and, and try and work out what that looks like. And they have to kind of build consensus. So they can't just sort of stamp and say, this is what's happening. Because when yeah. people's health is on the line, you know, they could just turn around and have like a rebellion. Although, as, as um, was it Molly was saying, um, about, you know, I'm sure a lot of people can't wait to get back in the office. That's, yeah. you know, and, and what's the rationale now for requiring people to come to the office? I mean, we've proven that there's no need to do that. And, and why would you force anybody to do that? I mean, other than like, you know, the old geezer partners, like Nikki was talking about, who just want to get out of the house and have a place to go. I mean, why do we even need law offices anymore? I, I think for those important meetings, like strategy meetings, there's a feeling that you have to be, or, or for certain things where you really need to, but then for reading emails, you need to be in the office. Sorry, Joe, would you say something? Oh, no, I, I wasn't. I, I unmuted myself, but I didn't say anything. <laughs> there's, and there's, you know, there's a, there's a firm management issue, too, because the, the second highest cost for law firms is real estate, right. which, you know, in part is because they're all downtown and high-rise luxurious buildings. But, you know, at some point, I wonder, as more and more people elect to work from home, whether law firm leadership is going to say, we could, we could save a lot of money here, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I definitely, I, I do some, when law firms open up new offices, I like to, if they invite me, I like to do a tour and like write up how fun their new office looks. And the trend of the last couple years has been smaller footprints. Uh, we don't need as much space. We are more flexible. More people do work from home. More people collaborate. Um, fewer offices by yourself, but more conference rooms so that you can just go grab a conference room if you need to be on the call. Uh, some people rebelled against that, but in a lot of ways, it seems as though that's the logical solution as we're going through all this, because a lot of those firms have smaller footprints and are doing much better because they didn't have the giant rent check over their, over their heads every week. Yeah. It'll be interesting because, you know, like, like sort of on the flip side of that, it's like, what is the psychology still behind having that big fancy office downtown? It's well, it's to impress people. It's to say, hey, you know, we're these big shots. We have, you know, all this money. We have all these great lawyers. We have all this cool art on our on our windows, uh, on our, not our windows, on our walls. We have all these fancy, fancy boardrooms named after important partners you probably never heard of. So, you know, I do think that that, that that's still going to be part of it. Like, you're going to want to have that like that physical footprint where you can you know, impress people. You can entertain. You can 
you know, maybe bring clients in and like, you know, throw your big parties and whatnot. But yeah, as, as far as like making sure everyone, everyone's seated in a cubicle at a given time during the day. I mean, yeah, as long as they're getting the work done and they, and, and they can show it and they can bill it. So who cares? I thought it was kind of interesting that with like this um, COVID-19 and more law firms working remotely that you did start to see, I think law firms were saying because of like the economic downturn that they were letting go and letting go of their secretary staff and kind of saying like, hey, we can still get things done when people are working remotely and we don't need someone outside of someone's office working. And already that trend was occurring beforehand, but you saw that kind of like law firm saying, okay, we definitely know we can get this done. Let's do, let's pull the trigger on this now. And I think um, Benjamin Moore letting go of their four member um, corporate legal department and just outsourcing them. I'm kind of interested, like, will that be a trend that we see, especially with those corporations with those small legal departments? And they just say, hey, we don't need a GC. We'll just outsource everything. So that kind of, of course, that won't be a model that all corporate legal departments will want to take on or will be able to take on. But it kind of be interesting to see, like, how if that trend will continue, especially with people getting more um, comfortable working remotely and them kind of, and corporations and law firms saying maybe we don't need this um, real estate space that we were taking up with either secretaries or with our legal department. You know, the well, secretary thing is something that really grinds my gears. And I've been uh, talking about this on uh, the Thinking Like a Lawyer podcast, KR, and I talk about this quite a bit. It's the problem with it is obviously this needed to happen for a while because you don't need you don't need an assistant for every lawyer anymore because people can now do their own word processing and so on and so forth. But the problem and I understand the logic of it, but it's just it's a tragic logic is that when times are good, these law firms go, we know we need to get rid of these folks eventually, but you know, we can afford it. Let's, let's keep this going. And they only choose to fire them when the economy craters and those folks now are left with nowhere else to go is we have a backward system of dealing with the staff changes that need to happen. And it's so annoying. And I feel for all the staff people who have been kind of let go throughout all of this because they're fine. They're being let go in a way that probably needed to happen in the way that business is changing, but at the worst possible time, it's awful. Another side to that story that I've heard repeatedly this year from people that I speak to who work in large law firms uh, is is that there has been a uh, kind of a flattening of the hierarchy within law firms that that the so-called allied professionals, the you know what we used to call non-lawyers, uh, the, all the people who work in the law firms um, who who are not lawyers feel feel that there has been a, a more of a, a leveling of roles through this pandemic, uh, in, in part because you know suddenly we're all on Zoom and we're all seeing into each other's bedrooms and living rooms, and the kids are all you know the big partners just like everybody else have kids running around screaming in the background and all that stuff. Um, but also in part because. The firms, uh, some of the firms probably became more acutely aware than ever before of what these allied professionals do for them uh, and the roles that they fill and the work that they do uh, and how important they are to keeping, uh, keeping the firm alive and, and, and supporting the practices that the lawyers engage in. So that's a positive, I think, that will have perhaps lasting repercussions. But then on the other hand, so so we've talked about the we've talked about trial lawyers using Zoom. So I, I was talking to a CIO just last, just this this week, um, and they were saying he was talking about um, a trial lawyer who, up until the pandemic, 
would get his he didn't even do, he didn't do anything himself he would get even get his assistant to print emails <laughs> um and would be you know really old-fashioned and now he does everything himself he does everything he's running he's running depositions on zoom you know and i and i think you know it, it's I, I, joe it's a really good point i i think the, the trouble is that this, this has forced people you know whereas before i think a lot of people really did still depend on their pa right and they needed them psychologically and physically in some cases outside their office a lot of it was status a lot of it was inca- <laughs> were incapable of doing stuff i think because they've been forced to go digital um, I think the timing is awful, um, but I think that um, it's, I think it's just I think I, th- I don't think there's I don't I don't see that bit going back, you know, on, in terms yeah. of that point. Unfortunately, yeah. the other thing that uh, to jump off of your point, I don't know if my connection is still bad, but um, um, if can you hear can you. hear me, okay. Yep. <laughs> uh, for Bob's point, one of the th- other things that I've seen is that how many law firms and lawyers are understand uh, more thoroughly the technology that they have uh, and that it has features that they could be, that they could have been leveraging ages ago, but they actually started to use. And Teams stands out as one. Um, that, so I hear from people all the time, oh, we, we had this. <laughs> You know, this is actually really useful. (laughs) Yeah. I think if your connection goes out again, you need to adjust the antenna there. Yeah. They're also training, aren't they? They're they're, they're engaging in training voluntarily. I don't know if you're hearing this, but so, so whereas before it was like plucking teeth, you know, and trying to get people now, they're actually, this comes up, it's come up time and time again that people are voluntarily trying to understand how things work, which is a new thing. (laughs) So, um, uh, two, couple of other, uh, I think, big stories of the year that that, that uh, folks have, have uh, brought up in our in our email exchange uh, before this. Uh, uh, Joe has one and Victor has one. Uh, Joe, so what, you, you've talked uh, a lot about this this year, but uh, fill us in. Yeah. So Jeffrey Tubin needs to know how to turn off his camera. No, um, <laughs> no uh, though that was a big uh, legal story technology story, I suppose, oh, and, and of you, the year. And you, let, you, you didn't even fill us in on the one last week, which I was really yeah. disappointed in. But, uh, wait, oh, wait, oh, wait, what do you mean? The, uh, the, the most the, recent- The, the partner getting oral sex. <laughs> oh, yes, the partner, yes, that was, <laughs> wow. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. That was incredible. And I've seen the video without the blurring <laughs> of the face and like, oh my, it's, um, yeah. Anyway, so partner did that. You can look it up on Above the Law. So two, um, but no, what, what I've talked a lot about uh, almost as much as Nikki's talked about avatars is <laughs> the bar exam and the way in which the bar exam uh, moving online was kind of a slow motion disaster. Uh, obviously, it's better than holding it in person, but they didn't really have a plan for how this was going to work. Uh, ExamSoft did its best, frankly. Uh, I, I mean, I don't give them a ton of credit on things, but I will give them credit on they did what they, I guess, needed to do to get it to spit and scotch tape get together. But just constantly, we had these issues. We had, uh, and I know Victoria and I both wrote uh, pieces about the the algorithm for facial recognition was consistently saying that black and brown people weren't really there, uh, which is a huge problem that can't really be swept aside ever. Uh, It was also flagging people as cheating for all sorts of normal behaviors. Uh, It 
because it wasn't a human meant that people weren't allowed to take bathroom breaks and stuff that they would in an in-person exam, which led to a story that was shared with us of somebody who actually had to urinate on themselves in the middle of the test because they dared not walk away. Uh, these are problems. And this is a sign that something bigger needed to happen. Uh, we just learned this week that California flagged a third of the applicants as cheaters because the algorithm spit out that they're cheating. And rather than you know take some time to delve into whether or not the algorithm was right or wrong, they presumptively sent all these people notices saying, you're cheaters, prove that you aren't. Uh, it's, it's a broken system. Uh, and the I think it was probably broken beforehand, but the way in which technology and the pandemic have kind of forced us to come to grips with the way that the testing and licensing regime in this country isn't really up to snuff uh, has been a big story. And, and do you think it's a story that's moving toward any kind of a resolution? I, I, you know, I, I am hopeful. I do think that I do think that California, despite their shenanigans this week, I think that the California Supreme court has suggested that they're starting to get open to the idea that maybe this is all a mess and that they should engage in some fundamental overhaul of the system. Uh, obviously, diploma privilege was a popular overhaul. The idea that maybe, just maybe, instead of having our law schools be cash cows, we should force them to teach up to a certain level such that we can trust that anyone who goes to them and comes out is eligible to be a lawyer. Uh, but that's not the only way. There are some proposals, and California seems interested in a few of them, to change the generalist bar exam, which is a generalist, which no lawyers really, well, very few lawyers really are anymore, and based on memorization, which, I mean, the practice of law is an open book exam every day, right? You know, like right. you you would not hire somebody who refused to look something up. And for that reason, they've been interested in some options that would be more practice area-based certifications and some ideas that are more skills-based and open book. And that kind of process, I think, could be valuable. And I think it's a lot like what you were saying about, well, uh, which uh, I guess Sustin said, but about the changing the tires on a moving vehicle, uh, the way in which the bar exam fundamentally broke under COVID uh, has encouraged more people to start talking about maybe we had this licensing thing all wrong from, from Jump Street. Right. Now, now you're talking heresy to suggest law, law school should actually teach practical skills. And, and uh, Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I understand some people are going to be upset about that, but. <laughs> Didn't you write about someone having a baby doing the exam? Is that yeah. You? No, it wasn't me, but uh, but uh, Stacy Stacy wrote about it. But it, it was above the law, like we had it, and I think other outlets did too. But yeah, yeah. Stacy wrote about this uh, woman who uh, had a baby uh, during it because you know you can't possibly have a licensing system that doesn't put people in a place where they have to choose between having a child and having the test. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things about that uh, debate. This is the best way to put it. It sort of, in a nutshell, revealed some of the problems with the profession. You have, you have an interest group that exerts enormous pressure on everyone to maintain the status quo. You've got a group of, of I don't want to say older lawyers, but, but traditional lawyers who insist, despite the fact that they, took, they tried to take the exam today, they probably couldn't because they're 
antitrust lawyers or whatever they are. Um, and then you have this other group of more uh, liberal, if you, if you pardon the, the term, approach and examination of the, you know, the validity of the whole concept. And it, to me, it's sort of a microcosm of many of the things that are wrong with the profession in, in many ways. Yeah, and then I guess another major development uh, this year, Victor, you flagged, and I guess actually Nikki, I realize you, you flagged it as well in your uh, ABA Journal article, uh, which is probably where Victor stole it from in the first place, I suppose. But uh, the the uh, I think he may have get, given me the suggestion to include it. I think it was. <laughs> Let's give him the credit for this one. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm just teasing. But uh, Victor, do you want to talk uh, a little bit about that? Sure. Um, yeah, like for me, the the biggest story was. Um, the Utah and Arizona uh, courts allow, you know, changing changing the ethics ethics rules to allow for some form of um, alternative business structure, be it you know um, hybrid hybrid firms where you have non lawyer ownership, uh, different kind of structures that have previously been banned, and you know it's just, it's just for for those of us who've been following this for a long time, it's like that that always seemed like the third rail, like that was the thing that was never going to happen. Like you know if, if you let if you let these money grubbing companies into um you know into our sacred profession then you know it's going to be a terrible thing it's going to put profit over over representation it's going to um you know damage you know damage um you know the the sanctity of, of law and it's going to um be a consumer rights issue and this and that and you know i mean and who knows maybe all those things could come true maybe all those things will <laughs> you know will, 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 will happen at some point but you know, I think I think what you know these states kind of looked at looked, looked at everything and they decided, okay, look, the bottom line is, there, this, the the justice system, the justice system just does not work for like a large percentage of people. Um, they they can't get adequate representation. They can't get adequate access to justice. The courts are very inaccessible or too expensive or too complicated for them. And something has to be done to try to adjust that. And to, and, and and if it means allowing these. Business, these these um, you know new business structures and and, and to come in and, and to try to address that then so be it and so it'll be interesting to see where they go um obviously you know uh, you like Arizona went a little bit further than Utah Arizona completely changed their um, ethics rules uh, whereas Utah put like a two year um, like a, a sandbox period like experimental to see to see how it goes so but it'll be it'll be interesting to, to see to see where this goes and to see if this catches on in other places I mean there are other states that are looking at doing things similarly. But, you know, those are the only two that have acted so far. Yeah, at least for me, this is the story. I mean, everything with COVID is obviously huge. The move to remote working, that's going to have ramifications. But if there's one trend that I think is incomplete and definitely is something worth following into next year, this is it. Because especially it happened, what, August? I don't think we've really seen the ramifications of what exactly opening up those rules means yet. We haven't really seen anybody take full advantage and take market share from law firms. If that's going to happen, it would happen a little bit down the road. We haven't seen to Victor's point whether some bigger states or at least states with more lawyers like California, like New York, like Illinois might be next on this. We haven't seen a larger professional or, uh, services organization like someone in the big four, whether they would try and uh license lawyers in those states and try and move in. Um, so I definitely 100% agree, but I also think this is probably something we're going to be talking about in this version of the webcast in 2021, because there's just so much up in the air with it. 
when, when it happened in the UK, it took ages. I remember when, when we obviously have had a market, you know, we've had a deregulation for years. And it, I mean, I expect, I expect it'd probably be quicker for lots of reasons than it was in the UK, but it took a long time. Um, and then it seemed like once it did start to happen, then it, it snowballed. Um, but I think, yeah, it'd be really, really fascinating to see how long it takes before you see much change. What I think is remarkable is that this year has really been kind of a, a perfect storm in terms of all these different things happening. And, and most of them were attributable to COVID. The, the regulatory reform efforts were underway well before the pandemic ever came along. And, and they were kind of moving along at, at, a, at a, well, a little bit of a snail's pace, but they were moving quicker in, in Arizona and California and, and, uh, and Utah than, than elsewhere. But, but the things that happened there were kind of already on track to happen. But though those regulatory reform uh, events happening combined with this greater awareness around you know, the, the, the courts and, and the need to use technology to deliver legal services and, and the need to reform how we educate lawyers and, and train lawyers and all of these things coming together this year has really did, I think, create a, a perfect storm, uh, a good perfect storm uh, in terms of uh, the uh, impact it's going to have. I keep, you know, the, the phrase I have heard so many times this year is, has been silver lining in this, uh, in this pandemic. And it just seems that uh, for the legal profession, uh, it, this really has been, you know, a, a boot in the ass or something essentially to get us thinking and changing the way we do things. And, and uh, hopefully it'll, hopefully it'll carry forward. Yeah. I think that's a good point too, though, that kind of is an overarching topic among a bunch of these that I've heard from people is not necessarily that anything that happened in 2020 is new. It's just that boot in the ass. It's people were already going remote, but this just accelerated the process. Courts were starting to modernize a tiny bit, accelerated the process. Same thing with opening up the ownership rules. Uh, and I don't think that necessarily anything here was like revolutionary or completely out of left field. It was stuff that was starting to get the ball rolling already. This is just a very heavy shove. And, and I, I, I'll just add to that, that I, that it's also just a massive proof of concept. So it's not just that, you know, the tools were there hadn't really been tried uh, in a big way or in a big project in a public way. And with everybody on the same level, same play, level playing field, everybody had to do it. No excuses um, to at least try um, and not a lot of pushback if it failed uh, or, you know, were able to make adjustments fairly quickly because of that. So, I mean, that's just completely unusual for a, for a situation like this. So it was, it's that kind of boot, but then also this just massive proof of concept. So I think that's what, if anything, is going to um, keep us moving forward in, uh, in terms of adapting and uh, adapting new technologies and really putting them to use. Uh, and that's one of the main reasons I don't think that we're really going to take too many steps backwards um, with in-person. I think we'll continue to see this because there's just been too much proof of concept that, that much of this works better, more efficiently, greater access uh, than, than we were in the past. And it's also been fascinating. There you go. Uh, not only is it a boot and a proof of concept, but 
so many, particularly the large law firms, they're having record years, right? So, uh, you know, if they had terrible years, then you might say, well, it's all because of that stupid Zoom and we had to do things. To, but, but no, you know, the whole world changed. We all went home to work and we all made more money. <laughs> what's wrong with that? <laughs> I, just, I think what's, for me, what's fascinating from, the, from a vendor point of view is um, these so things that someone pointed out that things like, although I t- t- to Zach's point, there's nothing revolutionary. At the same time, when you look at what some of them have done, like with Teams, which was not really top of Microsoft's list of development projects, <laughs> suddenly they have invested so much time and made so many changes. And with Zoom, which obviously is the darling of 2020, the, the way they have scaled that and the way that they wrote, they rose from, I forget what it was, from like t- 10 million to 200 million users. And and the transparency, which they, they obviously came in for a lot of flack, but I think there's a lot of real lessons from a vendor point of view as well in terms of, um, it wasn't it wasn't revolutionary, but it's been a really big, you know, there's going to be a case studies for years to come, I think, in, in terms of how the vendors have handled it. Can we take a second to like pour a little out for Skype who managed to bungle all of this? How in the world, how in the world did Skype not become the biggest company in the universe? And it's, well, I mean, I guess that's Microsoft, right? But which I guess they are pretty big, but like, how did they screw this up? This was tailor made for them. Yeah. They, and they suck worse than ever. You know, yeah. I think we uh, uh, want to call out uh, uh, Courtney Troutman's comment here uh, about, you know, diversity, uh, focus on Me Too, Black Lives Matter. And, and she says diversity in the bar, law firms or lack thereof became the biggest issue of all. It, it's been a it's been a huge issue this year, but I, I'm I'm feeling cynical about whether it's had a lot of impact. Whether there's been much movement, there's a lot of talk. There's been a lot of uh, you know air, hot air about it. Um, I, I just heard about some numbers that I that are maybe maybe coming out soon that that paint a you know a, not an overly rosy picture of of how well we've done in diversity uh, this year in a legal world. Um, so but what do you think? That's kind of the point, right? The fact that there are numbers now. Um, getting back to when Brian Parker was on here earlier mm-hmm. on in the year, it, a lot of what he talked about is just the need for actionable intelligence, the right. need for those numbers to actually be able to shine a light on what's happening in a lot of these law firms and corporate legal departments. It's one of those you have to start somewhere to make the change and having the numbers to point to that says, yes, this is bad. Um is at least somewhere to start. Well, and then the pandemic, a lot of studies have shown, has had a disparate impact on women and particularly women who are people of, uh, who are women of color. You know, it's in terms of people that got laid off, in terms of, um, you know, it's, it's, they were the ones that suffered the most in the legal field and outside of the legal field. But a lot of the women who were non-equity partners, you know, they're going to ask the partner, they're going to ask that partner. And that's what they did. You know, there was a lot of that going on. And so there was a lot of a disparate impact in that way. And it also, um, another thing that happened to women generally is that um, all of the, you know, they had to school their children, (laughs) you know, or assist them with homeschooling and work full time. Um, from home and they ended up shouldering uh, according to a lot of studies that have been done a lot of that work even though there's uh, significant others usually you know yeah. their husbands or 
uh, you know, were the ones that were, or partners were the ones that were um, also there. But somehow the women ended up shouldering a lot of those responsibilities. So it also, in some ways, just highlighted, <laughs> you know, uh, women's plight in life. And I'm not sure that it necessarily, uh, I don't see how it fixed it, other than showing that everybody has kids, you know, and yeah. we're all, <laughs> I don't know. Well, but, but part of the problem, of course, is, you know, most firms, um, you know, you make more money through origination credits, right? And a lot of firms are, have very archaic rules about who gets origination credit that may not have anything to do with actually who wins the, the client or a case, but more to learn, more to do with what has traditionally been done. And the result of that is old white men have more by and large origination credits in most law firms than younger people of color and, and women. And that, that impacts the compensation of the younger people of color and of women. And it also impacts the, the power within the firm because I mean, let's face it, most firms, the, the person they'll partner with the most power is the partner that has the biggest book of business or has the biggest book of origination. And unless and until clients who, uh, who profess uh, an interest in diversity and inclusion begin to insist on more, uh, more transparent and fairer compensation and origination credits, uh, system, I'm not sure that we're going to see a change. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting, Steve, that you brought that up, because I know my colleagues at Corporate Council, they've been writing about that, especially with the summer of 2020. Some general counsel are saying like they had to take the initiative to ask about like, hey, you have this original credit and they're saying like this is our um, the billing partner, but the person I reach out to or I'm emailing or I'm to, um, um, asking for status reports, for, um, status updates about isn't that lawyer like why aren't you why aren't you paying them or they should be um, tasked with like saying that they're leading the matter. So I really think and some people say, well, you some corporate counsel, like all the professional life has been in-house legal department. So they don't really know kind of like the, um, how law firms work. But it really has to be on the general counsel to say, hey, asking questions and kind of insisting like how this person should be compensated or who should be um, kind of nation credit or saying like who gets the extension of work credit and kind of leading that effort because law firms it kind of seems like they'll just say oh I don't know you know they they got this work 30 years ago I'm going to assume that they're still leading it but it's on the general counsel to really say like hey look into this further so I think it's kind of like some general counsel are starting to get that feeling just kind of like you can control more you can ask more questions and you can um, be more demanding. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm just wondering what uh, people, th I, I think both Victor and Nikki expressed a, a little bit of uh, maybe a, a pessimism about just exactly how lasting some of these changes are. What, what do other people think? What's, what's the next year going to look like? Are we going to continue to see forward movement uh, in some of these areas, that, that some of the positives that we've talked about, or, or, uh, or do we just go back to, uh, we all get our vaccines and go back to business as normal? I think my main worry, especially after everything that happened in 2020, is that even forward movement will look like stagnation, um, just because I think it will be very tough to have as much forward movement in any particular year as you did this year, just because 
kind of to your point earlier, everything stopped and you were able to change the tires on the car. Once you get the car rolling again, it makes it a little bit tougher. Um, so I think we will start to see movement. Uh, well, we will continue to see movement, but maybe not at the breakneck velocity that we saw in 2021. And whether that looks like to stagnate, looks like stagnation to some people very well might. I think it's interesting. I think it's going to be that um, culture, that, as usual, it's going to be probably come from the top, do you think? Like, I think in terms of, you know, I think if you've got progressive management who recognise the opportunities um, and who are conveying the right tone to the, and, and continuing to provide that, you know, that, that sort of positive message and, and, and convey this sort of like, you know, you could... You can do your sort of projects in the office and your strategy meetings, but you can do your emails from home and, and really make it work for them. I think that those are the firms, you know, I, I hope to see that. But I think, I think um, as usual, um, if you've got slightly more old fashioned senior management, I can see that there will be what we would consider a regression. I don't know whether that strikes a chord with anybody else. That's if that's if people get, I mean, bear in mind, we don't know what's going to happen in terms of whether people are actually going to, I think there's a logistical issue as well with getting people back in the office that's going to stand in the favour of continuing things as they are. Like people either will be giving up space and, and having to manage their space better or, you know, I think they're going to have to continue to maintain COVID-friendly sort of premises and all that kind of thing. That's going to stand in the favour of continuing um, sort of more sort of tech, tech first, more progressive practices probably. Mm -hmm. So to Nikki's point um, about about uh, women taking on the burden. I can't even tell you how many women I know who are dying to get back into the office. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I'm really sorry, I didn't join in that conversation because outside like, my son is rolling up and down the corridor on rollerblades and he had a crash and I'm just messaging my husband going, help! <laughs> so I apologize for not joining in that bit about women, which is quite close to my heart <laughs> message. Yeah, he's crying. He's crying. So it kind of goes to that point somehow. <laughs> I think Zach makes a good point. I mean, um, you know, let's face it. I mean, we are all social animals and we like being around other people. I mean, you know, I like going to trade shows and seeing Bob and Molly and Joe and, you know, and, and if I were able to do that today, if we could all do that safely, I'd probably do that. And hopefully in 2021, that'll be the case. Now, you know, on the outside looking in, you could say, well, that's regression. We've kind of gone back to the old way. On the other hand, there's a certain baseline that sort of human contact that I think all of us crave, frankly. Um, but I, I think we will continue to see people working at home. I think we'll see clients insisting that travel be reduced substantially because it's expensive. I mean, you know, why I fly to California if I'm, if I'm on the East Coast for a three-hour deposition and I can do it you know, via video. So I, I think there'll be lasting changes. Now that I've got an avatar, I'm never going back. That's it. Virtual conferences for me from now on. I agree with the travel. I can't see. So I've been, I've heard about people who've flown to Sydney for an hour meeting and all kinds of like really crazy stuff like that, which now I'm sure everyone's reflecting on it going, why would I do that? You know, I'm sure there's like right. lots of much more sensible practices in terms of travel. You know, we'd love to get together. I can't wait to see everyone, but do I want to go to start somewhere far flung for an hour meeting? No. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it has to have like a wet signature or something, which is still obviously a thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
We, we haven't expressly talked about uh, this yet. Now, Molly, you've been covering, you cover uh, access to justice issues a lot. I'm just wondering what you think, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in the few moments we have left, what you think has been the uh, impact this year on serving those who cannot afford the big firms and the wealthy law lawyers? Um, I, I do think that that's, that's a huge challenge and a huge progress point for courts. And one area is uh, the, the justice-involved community. Uh, so, you know, there are, some, there are a lot of uh, folks who really have a tough time making it to a proceeding or a hearing or an administrative proceeding that have been able to have those appointments made by Zoom or phone. And that's been a huge um, uh, um, step forward in terms of creating access points for those com those communities, the justice-involved communities, and it and uh, that also you know goes into healthcare too. Uh, so so I I think that there's been a lot of progress there. Also, just a ton of work left to be done. Um, you know, as the eviction moratorium start to expire, I think we're going to see some some pretty big impact. And, you know, landlords also need to be able to um, collect money and, and keep their businesses and pay their bills. Um, but at the same time, we're, you know, there, there's, I think there's going to be a big crisis. And I don't think the courts are really ready to, to manage that process yet. Uh, and, and you can see it with the panicky responses you, or pleas from uh, politicians asking for extensions and um, trying to figure out, you know, how to do this. But you can't kind of kick the ball um, <laughs> down the road forever. Yeah, no, I've talked to two different housing court judges in Massachusetts in the last two weeks, and, and both have said, we, there's just no way we're going to be able to, to handle this when, it, when, it, when the floodgates open. It's just beyond our capacity. And and I will, so, and also there are more, we're, again, we're going to have to look at the data to see, you know, how, how things uh, went really for some of these communities. Uh, but there are, are some uh, major equity issues with uh, online courts, online hearings, you know, are um, defendants uh, from lower incomes treated the same as defendants from higher incomes? You know, and then that everything comes into play, you, not just your technology, but your backgrounds and, uh, you know, how you're being presented and, and represented in that space. So, you know, all of those things are going to need to be looked at. And, and so far, you know, we're not seeing a ton, I'm not seeing a ton of um, progress for, um, for low income and um, underrepresented uh, population. Who wants to have the final word for 2020? Any final thoughts? I just wanted to mention that my ABA Journal article that is about the top five legal tech stories in 2020 will be coming out next week. So keep an eye out for that. And it covers a lot of, pretty much runs the gamut of everything, uh, covers the, what we just talked about today, but keep an eye out for that. Sounds good. All right, well, everybody have a great holiday season. Thanks to all of you for, for doing this, uh, this round table this year. It's been a lot of fun and it's really been uh, a lot of, a lot of good conversations. And uh, uh, if you're all up for it, we can come back next year and pick it up again. Mm. What else we got to do? Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank fun. you. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays, everyone. Bye. Bye. Stay safe. Bye.